You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. That is a beautiful piece of music and beautifully done. Please remain standing if you don't mind. Turn to Revelation chapter 8 if you're able. Revelation chapter 8. Christmas Advent officially begins today, but I'll just go ahead and give you a warning. This is not a Christmas Advent sermon that you're going to have to endure this morning. Um, We're going to do this sermon in Revelation today, and then we're going to take a break for the month of December. Sometime after the first of the year, we'll come back and pick it up in chapter 10. First of all, let's get to chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Father, as we've been walking through your word, Lord, we see your great power, your sovereignty, your providence. We worship you this morning because you are altogether different than us. Father, where we are weak, you are altogether powerful. Father, we are limited in what we know and we understand, but Lord, you're not limited and you know all things, even the very contents of our heart, the things we're thinking about right now, lay bare before you. Father, you have the ability to speak the cosmos into existence. And Father, we're limited to just a few years here on this planet. Father, you are eternal. There will never be anyone who overtakes you. There will never be one who unseats your throne. There will never be one who takes your place. You are forever, ever, and power, and reigning. Father, we we boast about great things, but we have nothing to boast about. Like Paul, the only thing we have to boast about is you. So Father, we are thankful this morning for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your mercies that are fresh and new every morning. We thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you, Father, for a day of life you've given us. Father, may you be exalted today, not only through song, not only through the prayers, through the reading and the proclamation of your word. May you be exalted and no one else. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. On December 26, 2004, at about 8 a.m. in the morning, something happened uh, in the Indian Ocean that would change the lives of the people, the countries around the Indian Ocean for, well, even to this day. There was a 9.2 earthquake in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And as a result of that earthquake, the next thing that would happen would be a a tsunami that was estimated to be somewhere greater than 50 to even 75 foot tall. There would be several waves of that tsunami that would just completely devastate the coastlines, even inland for several miles. This particular event uh, killed more people than anything else I can remember in my lifetime as far as a natural event, 230,000 people were killed from the tsunami and all of the 
issues that happened, the disease and the sickness and the flooding, the loss of their homes, 230,000 people died. There was another half million people that were injured and 1.7 million people homeless. And I don't know if you remember the images that we saw on the news uh, in days after the videos that would be shown of that wave coming in and just devastating everything. I remember one video where it showed, a, it looked like a river, but it was homes, houses, cars, trees, debris, just a huge, massive flow that was miles wide that was flowing inland from this tsunami that hit. What you may not know is seven years before that earthquake and tsunami hit, there was an official within the, the government of Thailand who had predicted that this was going to happen. He was an expert in, in this field of science, and, and he had been warning and watching all of the, the data and all the measurements, and he was convinced that there was going to be a great earthquake, and he predicted that it would be in the Indian Ocean. And he also predicted that as a result of that earthquake in the middle of the ocean, that a tsunami would hit that, that would just devastate millions of people. And this is what this guy is paid to do. This is the training that he had received. But yet, everyone ignored him. The very people that had hired him to do this very work ignored him when he gave them his findings. Not only did they ignore him, but they declared that he was crazy. He was actually banned from several of the uh, tourism areas of Thailand because they didn't want him going in the areas of, of tourism in Thailand and, and spreading his lies about a great earthquake and a tsunami that would come. In other words, it was more important to enhance the tourism than it was to prepare for something that might happen. When the earthquake hit out in the middle of the Indian Ocean, there are videos of, of people who are standing on the beach, and it looks just like a beach right on our coastline where you would take your family and you would go to the beach that morning to, to maybe enjoy a day at the beach. And, and while they're there, out miles out into the Indian Ocean, an earthquake happens where the bottom of the ocean floor dropped. And at the moment that ocean floor dropped and cracked open, the water ran back to fill in those areas. So while you're standing on the beach, if you can imagine this, maybe at Holden or Ocean Isle or North Myrtle, you're there with your family, you got all your sand toys out, and all of a sudden, the waves that have been coming and going, coming and going, as they always do, the, the ocean recedes some thousand feet back out into the, into the openness. And, and now all of a sudden, you've, instead of having a beach that's 150 feet wide, you now have a beach that's 1,200 feet wide, and you're standing there and you're marveled by what you see. So much so that, that you take your family, let's walk out and let's, let's look at what's going on here. So these people, and there's video of it, of people walking out onto this dry seabed now because all of the ocean has receded back. Nobody's asking any questions. No one is running. They're simply thinking, wow, isn't that odd? So they walk out hundreds of feet where the ocean used to be, and they're out there picking up fish. And they're pointing and they're, they're wondering, what could, what could be happening? Well, little did they know, less than just a few minutes later, there would be a wave that would come back in some 50 to 70 feet tall. And every single person that walked out into that void died that morning on that beach. If they had only been warned, if they'd only been told that, hey, if you ever see the ocean recede back, that's a cause to run the other direction. If... 
if they had only believed this guy in Thailand who, who said this was going to happen, maybe some of those people could have been spared. Maybe some of the damage could have been limited. Maybe they could have been more prepared and people would have known. But yet, isn't it amazing that when people are paid to be experts and tell you that something bad could happen, we tend to ignore it. Have you ever been in a restaurant, a movie theater, and the fire alarm go off? Maybe a false alarm. Well, what do people do? They don't get up and immediately head for the exits. Well, they do. They, they keep sitting and looking around, and is, is this real? Should we do something? Oftentimes, the police or the, the fire department has to come in and ask people to leave, and that's what the point of the alarms are. But there's something inside of us that tends to not believe even what is right in front of our face. Last week, we, we looked at four groups of people and I identified those four groups of people. The first group of people were the ones who were around the altar. And these were the ones who had been martyred for their faith, the ones in the tribulation who had put their faith in Jesus, and they'd been killed for their faith, and they're at that altar and they're crying out to God, saying, God, how long? How much longer is it going to be before you take action? How long is it going to be before you go and make the wrongs right? And then we saw another group of people John describes them as the 144,000, 12,000 each from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says that these are the servants of God and they've been marked or sealed by God. And they have a mark on their forehead and they are going to serve during the tribulation period. And I believe they are going to be a witness for God, just like we see in the Old Testament when God would send prophets to his people to say, judgment is going to come if you don't turn your hearts back to God. In fact, those 144,000 could point to the natural events that are happening and say, look, that is God's wrath. Won't you put your faith in him? The third group of people, the scene shifts back to heaven, and in heaven we have this scene of worship where there are millions of people from every tribe, every nationality, every ethnicity gathered around the throne, and they're worshiping. And John is asked by one of the elders, John is asked, hey, hey, who are these people? Do you know who they are? And John says, no, you know who they are. And the elder says, yeah, let me tell you who they are. They're the ones whose robes have been washed white. In other words, they have put their faith in Jesus even in the middle of this great time of judgment. And now they are standing before the throne worshiping the king. But there's a fourth group of people that we talked about that's kind of behind the scenes. And this fourth group of people is going to be the people that we focus on today. Last time I told you that this group of people were the ones on earth that were receiving the wrath of God, that, that they had rebelled against God and they were continuing to rebel against God. And as God unleashes his wrath, well, you would expect that maybe those who were living in rebellion would finally surrender to God. You would, you would expect that, that as they saw the hand of God moving undeniable in, in the events that are happening upon the planet, the cataclysmic events that are happening, you would imagine that they would step back and go, wait a minute, th this has to be God. There must be a God. He must be real. What do I need to do to make things right with him? We saw last week where in the middle of the wrath that God is pouring out, they would ask that the, the mountains would follow them. In other words, they, they chose that the death would be better than suffering under God's wrath that he's pouring out. And I hope by this point you understand that, that God is both loving, perfect, and righteous, but he is also just, and he can, you make no mistake about it, he is going to make all the wrongs right. That's who he is. His very nature 
his very character, is that all the wrongs that have been done, he will make them right. When we look at chapter 8 and when we look at what's happening, we're going to see that the trumpet judgments are about to start. We've, we've looked at the, the seal judgment, but now we're going to look at the trumpet judgments and we're going to look at what unleashes, what God unleashes upon this planet. But there's a question we need to wrestle with this morning. And why is it, why is it that when people are confronted with the reality that there's a God in heaven, whether they're looking at a, a sail under a microscope or they're looking at one of the large planets out in the cosmos, whether they're thinking about, wow, I can see color and I can see depth and I can hear and I can breathe and I'm alive and surely I'm not an accident. Surely this planet is not an accident. Surely the cosmos is not some cosmic accident. Surely there must be a God. There must be a creator. Why is it that when we're confronted with the reality of what is true and what is false, in that moment, most often, people choose to not believe. What is it about the human heart that even confronted with the reality of God, that we choose to believe something, well, believe a lie? Why is it that the humanity tends to worship itself or worship some other false god that has no evidence, no proof? Why is it that we, we tend to worship money when we know that money will never fix our problems? Why is it we continue to pursue that which we know is not real, which we know cannot change our circumstances, and yet when confronted with a holy God who created you for purpose and peace and joy, when confronted with that reality, we reject it? Well, that's what I want you to look at in chapter 8 and chapter 9 today, because this fourth group of people, this group of people that are on earth, that are seeing the, the miraculous unveiling of God's power in real time, they make a choice. And I want you to see the choice they make. Chapter 8, verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Remember, Jesus has taken the scroll from the hand of God. And Jesus is breaking those seals and unrolling the scroll with each section of judgments that we've already looked at. Remember, we've seen the four horsemen ride. We've seen famine. We've seen war break out in the streets. We've seen incredible inflation where people can't afford to eat. We've seen earthquakes. We've seen uh, the sun blackened. We've seen the moon turn to the color of blood. We've seen cataclysmic weather events through God's judgment where John looks at the sky and he says it looks like that the sky was rolling with such, well, with, so, with such fervency that it looked like a scroll was being rolled up. John describing what he's seeing in real time. So we get to the seventh seal, and I told you that the seventh seal is going to unveil the next set of judgments, the seven trumpet judgments. Verse 2, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. The seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Last week I said these martyrs, these, these souls of those who've died for their faith, they are gathered around an altar, and I believe it's the altar of incense. This is a not only was it present in the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle, and there the, the priests would offer incense, and that incense represented not only the worship of God's people, but it also represented the prayers of God's people. So we have that same imagery in heaven in the throne room of God. John says that around that throne he saw those who had died for their faith, but now we see an angel approach that altar and begin to offer incense to God, and he says here that that incense is mingled with or mixed with the prayers of God's people. 
Not just the prayers of those around the altar, but the prayers of all of God's saints. And I believe it's the prayers, represents the prayers of all people of all time, even the ones you prayed that you didn't even believe that God heard. Have you ever been in a circumstance in your life where you're praying to God, but it doesn't seem like the prayers are getting much above your head? Have you ever been in a place in your life where it didn't seem like there was any way forward and all you could do was call out to God and in those moments it seemed like God was somewhere off running the universe? Right here in Revelation, in the middle of all this destruction, we have your prayers, the prayers you have offered, the prayers that you prayed that you never thought even got out of the room. God heard them not only when you prayed them, but here in this moment, those prayers are still before God. Those prayers are still echoing in the mind of God, the things that you called out for on behalf of your family, your marriage, your job, your health. When this seventh seal is open, we have silence in heaven. It's almost like we hit, we hit pause on the wrath of God here for just a moment. If you're a, a student of history, and you've read about the world wars and all the great battles that have taken place, you'll often find among those documents or those historical accounts that some of those great battles where the war changed directions or those, those moments in the war where it changed, oftentimes right before those great battles there was a night or a day or 24 hours where there was just kind of peace. And it's almost like the soldiers kind of get a break and everybody kind of digs in and, and it's like there's like a, like a calm before the storm, almost like okay, let's take advantage of this, and most armies would, most militaries would. They're resupplying. They're getting everything ready for that one last big push. That's what we have here. We have a pause in the destruction, but make no mistake about it, that pause is going to be short. And during that pause, there is worship in heaven, and there are prayers that are coming up before God. And then, look at verse 5, the angel takes the censer, and he scoops up some coals out of the altar, and he takes those coals and he hurls them towards the earth. And now the silence is going to be broken. The, the pause is going to end. And now on earth, flashes of lightnings, peals of thunder, voices is being, are being heard. And what's getting ready to happen now, that little calm that we had, well, that was the calm before the great storm that's coming. There's already been a bad storm on earth. There's already been great wrath poured out. There's already been incredible judgment unlike anything anyone has ever seen. But let me tell you, folks, that is the precursor to what's getting ready to happen now. Look at verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. I said this to you a few weeks ago, but it's worth saying again and expanding upon just a little bit. If you, if you struggle with the whole idea of, say, Jesus raising Lazarus back to life, remember John 12, Jesus standing out in front of the tomb, he calls out to have the stone removed, and he says a few words, a prayer to God, and the next thing you know, a man who'd been dead four days walks out. If you wrestle with that, or if you wrestle with the idea that Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus, maybe you're of the, the persuasion that the miraculous doesn't happen. Maybe you're of the idea that that what's in the natural world and the natural occurrences in the world that can be explained by science, that nothing happens outside of that. Well, you're really going to wrestle and you're really going to struggle with these trumpet judgments. And not only that, let me say that 
that the problem that you have with belief is not a problem with God, it's a problem inside of you. Because I would offer to you that the God who can speak the universe into existence, the, the, the God who can speak and hang the sun in the right place and place the earth at just the right distance from the sun, that the God who can speak that into existence is going to have no problem throwing down upon this earth hell, fire mixed with blood. Can we all agree to that? All right, so we're all on the same page. Jesus who can raise a dead man back to life, it's not going to be a problem for him to cast down hell upon this earth. Hell stones, hell that you know. You've drove up 95 before and you've got hit with a storm. And those big balls of ice begin to hit your car. I remember seeing a guy's car one time. He got caught in a hell storm. It looked like somebody taking a hammer and just beat his hood and the top of his car just to pieces. So you understand the idea of hell, but what you... What you don't have any context for is hail that is mixed with fire and blood. And this is thrown down upon the earth. So not only the destruction of the hailstones itself, but the destruction of the flames and the fire where a third of the earth is burned up. Grass, trees. So anywhere that you can think of, grass, trees, crops, take all of that land mass, one third of that's going to be on fire. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? We've seen the wildfires out in California. We've seen the wildfires out in the Midwest. I know that some of you who are firemen went out there and, and actually worked on some of those fires. I remember somebody goes to this church telling me about him going out there. He said, it's, he said it's impossible to fight the fire. It's impossible. The wind's blowing. You just have to retreat back and just let it burn. And oftentimes you'll see in the news where they just say, look, there's, there's nothing we can do. We can't control this. There's no way we can put it out. We can just try to contain it and just let it burn out. Now imagine all that you've seen in those millions of acres burn in California. Now multiply that times all of the landmass on this planet. A third of that is going to be on fire. And that's just the first trumpet. I want you to see the, the correlation between these trumpet judgments and the judgments that God poured out upon Egypt in Exodus chapter 7 and 10, you don't have to, 7 through 10, you don't have to turn over there. If you remember, the Israelite people are in bondage to Egypt, and God sends Moses to set his people free. And, and in those plagues, those 10 plagues, there are several of those plagues that correlate very closely to these trumpet judgments. In fact, in those judgments, the seventh plague upon Egypt was hell. That wasn't hell like it's described here, but it was hailstones that were poured out upon the nation of Egypt. Look at the second angel, verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The word, the third, one-third, that's used 13 times in chapter 8. Talking about that even in this destruction, God is holding back. While God could, could destroy the entire earth in one moment, he's holding back. Why is he holding back? Because he has 144,000 servants on this earth who are marked for God, who are telling these people who are watching this happen in real time, there's a God in heaven and there's still a chance, still a chance for you to be made right with him. This great mountain, remember John is describing what he sees. And John can only write down what he, what he sees in relation to what he's experienced. So when he looks at this, he sees something like a mountain. And this mountain is being thrown into the sea. And as it's thrown into the sea, it causes all kinds of chaos in the ocean. We, we see that the sea life died. It could be that whatever this is that hits the water raises the temperature of the oceans, which, by the way, changes everything within our, our dynamic as far as a planet. 
The sea life began to burn or begin to die. The water's filled with, with dead sea life. Also, we can imagine just like in Indonesia, we can imagine that something that large hitting the water would cause incredible tsunamis all over the globe. Now again, I don't know what John is seeing. I just know what John describes. He says it was massive, it was like a mountain, and it destroyed a third of the sea life. But notice this, it destroyed a third of the ships. It's interesting to me that, that John includes that particular item. If we back up into COVID, when the COVID thing was at its peak and everything was shut down, do you remember you, you go to Walmart or Target to buy something and the shelves would be empty? And they'd have a little sign there that would say, you know, due to COVID disruptions in the flow of, you know, supplies, this item is not available. And then you hear on the news and you see images of, of ships out in the harbor around California with all the big, huge shipping containers. and They're all full of stuff you'd like to buy. And they can't get into port because there's not enough people there to work to unload the ships because of the COVID restrictions. I imagine that a third of all the ships are destroyed in this event, that, that the naval ships, the military, the, the ships that haul our goods, and, and put this on top of the fact that this world is already experiencing famine. Remember the horses that, that we talked about in chapter 6? They're already warring among themselves, fighting for water and food. Inflation has already taken hold that you can't even buy anything with even a day's wage, even if you had the money. People are killing one another. And now we have this on top of those other judgments. Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers, the springs of the water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. John here describing what he sees not only as the ocean being disrupted, but now fresh water. Something falls, some star, some, some event. Some say that this is some kind of dirty bomb, and that's the only way John knew to describe it. Maybe it's some kind of nuclear warhead. We don't know. I'm not going to speculate about that. All I know is what John saw, he writes down, and what he says is, is that it poisons a third of the water, and people would try to drink it, and it would poison them. And the water was made bitter. Wormwood was a plant in John's day that was very bitter, and if you, if you consumed it, it'd make you sick. It could kill you if you consumed enough of it. John says, this is what I, what I see. That not only is the oceans, the third of the oceans destroyed, but now there's nowhere to find fresh water. Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that the third of their light may be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. When you get up every morning, you expect, you don't even think about it, sun is going to come up, right? There's going to be a day, even on a cloudy day today, like today, you expect that, that this is going to happen because it's been happening your whole life. You know, with the, with the change of the clock and the change of the time and, you know, get darker early in the afternoon now, yeah, it changes, but you still expect sun's going to come up at this point, sun's going to go down at this point, and you've been experiencing that your entire life. But when this judgment falls a third of that light is going to be dark. And not only just the moon and the sun, but the stars as well. You walk out in the middle of the night, you're able to see the stars. You're able to point to certain stars and go, okay, that's this star and that's this star. At this point in time, God is going to put a veil over that light. And it's going to be, it's going to be darkened to a point to where it's going to be hard to see, hard to navigate, hard to figure out where are we going, where are we at. And, and you include that with all the chaos that is already happening 
And now we're in darkness, or at least light that has been turned down to a great degree. It's at this point you may be asking yourself, why in the world would God rain down such destruction upon the beauty of his creation? I mean, you think about the oceans, the mountains, you think about the pinnacle of his creation, humanity. Why would, why would God, is God mean? Is he some kind of just like mean ogre up in heaven and, and he's just waiting to bash us about the head and shoulders? He can't wait to pour out his judgment, no. You see, the God that we worship, not only is he altogether love, perfection, righteousness, but he is also a righteous judge. And God's very character says that all the wrongs will be made right and that this earth, not only just the inhabitants of this earth, but the earth itself was judged all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The, the earth itself, the reason we have hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes, the, the reason we have those things is because the earth itself is under judgment and God is raining down not only his judgment upon his creation, but upon humanity that has rejected him. Look at verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. This, this being that is flying that looks like an eagle, this is how John describes it, I think it's one of those four beings that was around the throne. If you remember, one of those beings was described as looking like an eagle. And that, that being is flying over and he's saying in our vernacular, oh my goodness, look what God has already done with these four trumpet judgments, but oh my goodness, look what God's getting ready to do with the three that are remaining. In other words, the angel himself, this being himself, is astonished at what God is unleashing upon this planet. Chapter 9, verse 1, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. Now what happens in this trumpet judgment is, is very different than what we've seen in all of the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments up to this point. What we've seen up to this point can be explained from a natural occurrence. In other words, okay, volcanoes, get that. Earthquakes, okay, we know what an earthquake is. We, we, we know what, what can happen when something hits the ocean. We know, we know what happens when, when the water turns back. We, we look at all these judgments and while they are extreme and they're cataclysmic and there's nothing in history that can compare. We understand a little bit about what's going on here. But when you get to the fifth trumpet, something shifts dramatically. What you see with the fifth trumpet can only be compared to maybe a movie you saw that was fiction. What we have with the fifth trumpet is the veil between the spiritual world and the natural world well being severed and removed. Right now we know, we know based on the authority of scripture that, that, there, that there is a demonic power in the world and yes, there are demons and yes, there is a literal entity called Satan. I believe it because the Bible teaches it. But also see the effect that they have upon the planet and upon humanity. But have I ever seen a demon? No, I have not. Have I ever seen anything that comes close to that? No, because there's a, there's a veil between humanity and the spirit world. They're alive, they're well, they're all upon the earth. We don't see them. But in this moment, in this moment, 
that veil is going to be pulled back. This pit is going to be opened. And what happens next is supernatural. It's beyond anything this world has ever seen. As a matter of fact, there's nothing else in Scripture. There is no other place in Scripture that gives us an account like this. So he says that the star had fallen. I believe that that star that has fallen, I believe that to be none other than Satan himself. There's different opinions on that, but I think that's who this is. If you go back to Luke 10, we have Jesus talking to his disciples. The disciples have been sent out to share the gospel. They come back. They talk about how, how much influence that they had had. And then Jesus, all of a sudden, and Luke 10 says this, he says, and I saw a star fall from heaven who was none other than, than Lucifer. John uses the same description here. And Satan is given a key by God to open this pit. And when he opens this pit, smoke comes out and fumes come out. And out of that smoke comes something that, that appears like a locust, but it's not really a locust. It's something unlike anything we know in the natural world. It's a locust that John describes has a tail that has a power like a scorpion. Now, I, I, don't, have any, I don't have any experience with scorpions, thank goodness. I can't imagine living where there are scorpions, but I have seen TV shows just like you have and YouTube videos where people have gotten stung with those things. And they describe the pain as being like their arm is on fire. It takes a long time for it to, to heal. Apparently, these, these locusts have that kind of power not, not only that, but they have faces like human beings. It says they had long hair. If you're looking on down, verses 9 and 10, they have breastplates. They, they, they're armored. They're, they're, it looks like they're invincible. And when you put all of these descriptions together, you get something hideous. You get something that defies explanation. That's why John had a hard time even telling us what it is. But what I can tell you this, I can tell you this for certainty, what we see here are demons with a physical appearance that you can see, touch, feel, and experience that have been unleashed upon this planet in this moment. They have tails that stings like scorpions, and they have this power to go out and inflict pain. But notice how God limits what they can do. First of all, he says, verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth. So any grass or green plants that remain, they can't harm it. Normally, that's what locusts would do, but they're not going to do it this time. But only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, those who've rejected God, those who are continuing to reject God, he says to these demons, that's the only ones you can touch. Not only that, you're only going to be able to do it for five months in verse 5. But look at, look at the rest part of verse 5. Look at the latter part of this. He said, but you're not allowed to kill them, but their torment is like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. In verse 6, and in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. We don't have this anywhere else in Scripture. God says that when these demons are unleashed, that not only is he going to unleash these demons to torment people, but, but in that moment, God is going to remove the opportunity for them to be able to die. Let that sink in for just a moment. These folks who are under such torment are going to throw themselves off of buildings. They're going to consume everything they can consume to take their own life, but God is not going to allow that. 
He's not even going to allow them to die because in this moment they're saying death has got to be better than this wrath. Death has got to be better than these things. Death has got to be better than trying to find something to eat. So I choose death. And God says, no, you don't get to choose that. I'm taking that away. Folks, there's nothing else in Scripture that compares to what we're seeing. He says they have over them a king, an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In the Greek, his name is Apollyon. That means destroyer. That's why, again, I believe this is Satan. I want you to understand that up until this point, especially in these trumpet judgments, everything that is normal, what a normal human existence looks like has now been taken away. You can't find food, you can't find water. People are trying to kill you in the streets, and not only that, we have this cataclysmic weather events that can only be explained that God is, is doing this. No one else has that kind of power. And when you add to that, the sun is darkened, the moon is darkened, we don't even see the stars. And then you add to that demons who are flying over the planet who are stinging you over and over again, but you can't die. Everything that you know to be a human existence has been taken away. Everything that you know to be a human being and what it means to live on this planet is being taken away moment by moment, judgment by judgment. Look at this one, verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. The river Euphrates used to divide the, the, the Romans from all of their enemies, and this great river was like a barrier that would protect the Roman Empire. They could trust that, that when the, 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 their enemies would come to the, the great river Euphrates, that it would slow them down. And the Romans trusted in that greatly. And here we see that God, in time past, bound four angels somewhere in the vicinity of the unseen world around the river of Euphrates. So these four angels who had been prepared, listen to this, prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Uh, we see this over and over again. That God in his sovereign power, in the chaos that is happening on this planet during the tribulation time, that God is still very much in control. So much in control that in eternity past, we don't know when, maybe at the time of creation, maybe at the time of the fall. God bound four angels at the river Euphrates. I don't believe these are good angels. I believe these are demonic angels because nowhere in Scripture do we have good angels bound. He releases them. And they've been prepared for that hour, that day, that month, and that year. And they were released to kill a third of the mankind. Now, if you've been keeping up with the math, which is a little hard, by the time we get to the sixth trumpet, if you figure it all up, more than half of the world's population has died at this point. More than half of the people who were on the planet when all this began, half of them have now died. How are they going to do it? Look at this verse, uh, verse 16. And the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Again, you want to do the math, that's 200 million. So these four angels reveal an army. And this is an army that is demonic in nature. I believe they, they, they're to be the, the enemies of God, but they are now embodying demonic spirit. And, and these four angels have under their control this 200 million person army at their disposal. And they're going to be sent out. Now listen to how he describes them. 
He said, I saw horses in the vision. They rode them. They had breastplates, the color of fire, sapphire, and sulfur. And the heads of horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouth. And by these three plagues, the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur, a third of mankind was killed. So this 200 million army mounted, ready to go. By the way, the world's not seen anything quite like that. There's been rumors of militaries that were that large, but we've never seen anything gathered like that in one place. And this army is unleashed, and their job, their goal, their purpose is to kill a third of humanity. But I want you to hear, I want you to hear how humanity responds. Verse 20 and 21, I want us to focus on that. All these judgments, all these supernatural events, all that God is doing and pouring out on the planet. At one point in chapter 6, the people realize that what is happening must, can only be explained by a powerful being. And they cry out for the mountains to crush them. And by the time we get to the trumpet's judgments, and remember, these judgments are coming pretty quickly. And they're being laid out during this time we call the tribulation period of time. And they're seeing this with their own eyes. And maybe you've had a friend or, or someone that you work with say this to you. I would believe in God if, if God would just show up and do some kind of great miracle, right? If, he could just, if God could just prove who he is, then I'll believe. If, if God could maybe heal my loved one or if, if God would put, fill my bank account up with money, if, um, if, if God could do something, a little sign where I could, I could see it, then I'll believe. The reality is, is that from Genesis to Revelation, we've got account after account after account of people who saw incredible miracles yet did not believe. Listen, folks, in the upper room, in the upper room, Jesus, who they saw die on a cross, is in the upper room, and Thomas, who was not there before, is doubting, but now his doubt is eroded away when he sees the scars. But there were people after Jesus' resurrection who saw Jesus resurrected who did not believe. All through the Old Testament in the nation of Israel, we have Red Seas being parted. We have plagues being poured out upon Egypt. We have Israel itself being judged at times in their history. And you know what people did? They was like, eh. They didn't believe. So this idea that if, if God will do some miracle, if God will do some kind of work in my life, then I'll believe more than likely, and based on the testimony of Scripture, you won't believe. And secondly, God doesn't owe you anything. Amen. Matter of fact, he's already done the greatest miracle ever. Jesus Christ dead three days, resurrected, seen by 500 on a mountainside, documented in the New Testament. But listen, God doesn't owe you a sign, a miracle. God says, I've already given you all you need right here. If this isn't enough, then a statue crying, a healed family member, or a bank account full of money is probably not going to change your hard heart. Now, if that's the case, we need to ask some questions about that, do we not? Listen to what it says. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. They did not turn to God. They did not fall on their face and beg for mercy. They did not. In other words, look what it says. He says, they did not repent of the work of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols. But now wait a minute. 
Is John describing Satanism here? Is he, is he saying that there was this movement of Satanism where people were worshiping demons? I say, well, maybe. But I don't think that's what he's talking about because he includes that phrase and idols. We go back to the Old Testament. We go to the book of Isaiah in particular. And you read the book of Isaiah where, where Isaiah the prophet is dealing with the idol tree that is inside the nation of Israel. And here's what you find. Isaiah, first of all, tells the people of Israel, he says, y'all are foolish. He says, because you're bowing down to statues that you've made with your own hands. That is ignorant. But not only are you bowing down to statues that you've made with your own hands, those things represent darkness. In other words, you're not just bowing down to a statue, you're bowing down to darkness. So in other words, idol tree and the worship of Satan are connected. And that's exactly what John says here. John says that in their idol tree, they're actually worshiping demons. Now, are there people during the tribulation who are actually worshiping demons? Yeah. But that's not what exactly what he's talking about here. What he's saying is, is that idol tree. And idol tree is, is that thing that we give time, that thing that we give worship to, that is only devoted to God? In other words, we're giving something that should only be given to God, we're giving it to something, whether that be money or fame. I mean, most people in our context, they don't have a statue in their house they're bowing down to, but make no mistake about it, we got plenty of idols that are being worshiped today. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that human beings are idol factories. It could be any number of things. But what you're giving to that thing was meant to only be given to God. And so for, so, so in that moment, when you're giving it to this thing, rather than giving it to God, you know what you're doing? You're accomplishing the purposes that Satan had all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Remember what he said to Adam and Eve, did God really say that you couldn't eat of that tree? And by the way, God is trying to keep something from you that you deserve. And Adam and he's like, you know what? You're right. We deserve that. We ought to be God. All idolatry leads back to you being God, something you control. John says they would not give up their idols of silver and bronze and stone and wood. And he adds in here, which cannot see, hear, or walk. In other words, they're, they're, they're bowing down to these things, and no doubt they're praying to these things, saying, spare us from this destruction. Spare us from these stings, from these locust creatures. Spare us and provide food and water, and that stupid idol that they're bowing down to that's made out of gold and silver and wood cannot do a thing for them. And so it is with you, and so it is with me. Whatever idol we're bowing down to, whatever thing we're giving our life to, ultimately that thing will fail us. Listen to what else John says. Verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders, sorceries, or sexual immorality, or their thefts. Notice how John lists those things. John says that when he, when he looked at this, he saw people killing one another without any inhibition. In other words, the value of human life has went way, way down the scale. And so these people are killing each other for water, food, or just for sheer joy. He says they wouldn't repent of that. He said they wouldn't repent of their sorceries. That word sorceries brings to the table... Um, magic and conjuring and all of that stuff. But not only that, what's interesting about that word, that Greek word behind your English word, is it also brings in the idea of drugs and, and things that, well, take your attention and mess up your brain and cause you to be addicted to something. It's interesting that during this time, 
that people are caught up in these kinds of things and they're no doubt looking to sorcery, looking to witchcraft, or looking to drugs to, to dull the effect of all this happening rather than returning, returning to God and repenting. And then notice this, there's sexual immorality, sexual immorality. The Greek word is pornea. That word includes every sexual act outside of the marriage of one man and one woman. So all sexual morality, immorality that is outside of marriage of one man and one woman, that is what the Bible describes as sexual immorality. Isn't it interesting that during this time, when the world is on fire, what is everybody focused on? Sexual immorality? I mean, think about it. I mean, let's just, let's just be honest and adults in the room here for just a moment. If a third of the world is on fire, the oceans turn to blood and dead animals, I can't drink the water, the last thing that would probably be on my mind is, well, that, right? Well, I'm just being honest with you. But in this context, because they are so much focused on their flesh and so much focused on that they are God, they call the shots sexual immorality is alive and well. And then, of course, stealing, taking from others what is not theirs. When we look at what John calls out here, murdering, sorcery, drug abuse, sexual immorality, and stealing, do we not see the platform? Can we not see the foundations of all of that today? Can we not see the foreshadowing of that mess today? Can we not see the rampant murdering that is happening today? Can all of that be setting the stage for what's coming next? Just like I said last week, maybe this is not as far off in the future as we think it is. And if it's not, we need to pause. These folks didn't repent. They refused to see what was right in front of their eyes. And as such, as we move further in the book of Revelation after the first of the year, we're going to see where this leads. We're going to see a nation rise up with a person empowered by Satan, and they're going to receive marks on their heads, just like we saw with the 144,000. They're going to receive marks on their head, their allegiance to Satan, their allegiance to the Antichrist. And in that moment, they're going to draw a line in the sand, and they are going to try to overthrow God. Exactly what Satan tried to do. How did that work out for him? These folks right here in chapter 9, after all that they've seen, all that they've experienced, they will not repent because their heart has become hard. God is alive and he's at work all around us. God is alive and at work in your life, down in your individual life, in your individual home. He's at he's a work in the lives of your kids and your grandkids. He's with you when you go to work. He's with you when you come home. When you went to sleep last night, God was still running the universe and still working on your behalf. The question is, are you going to open your eyes and see it while there's still time? Are you going to open your eyes and see this majestic, powerful, beautiful, holy God who says to you, I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm going to give you another chance. Will you choose to worship the God who made us or will we worship the gods we make with our own hands? You won't have to look far because I don't have to look far to find the idols in my life. You don't have to look far to find the idol. And oftentimes my idols always come back to me. My ego, my pride, my arrogance, it comes back right home with me.
And I have to choose to deny those gods because I have given my life to the only God that matters. And I am to worship him and not waste my worship on something less than him. I'll read this paragraph to you and we'll close. It's from an author that uh, I think writes this very well. His name is J. Boyd Nicholson. Listen to what he says about the good news, the gospel. He says, quote, The gospel is not a tranquilizer for worried weaklings to help them sleep at night. It is not a mass of dead dogmas deep frozen in some ancient cathedral to be carried as a burden through life and thawed out five minutes before death. The gospel is not a list of religious rules and regulations to be strung around the soul like a lucky charm in case of accidents. No, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is a message. And what a message it is. It is a living message from the living God for living people just like us. For people with sins just like us. For people with sorrows and heartaches just like us. It is the only message on the face of the earth with concrete promises and absolute assurances, assurances of an eternal inheritance that will withstand the impact of death and the collapse of the universe. In other words, this author says, you have a choice to make. You can either put your trust in something that is real, lasting, and eternal, or you can put your trust in something less than that is weak, can never provide for you what you're seeking, and ultimately lead to your death and destruction, and the choice is yours. You'll either choose to see that God is alive and that you're going to live for him, or you're going to choose to see that there's some less than God that you're going to give this short life to, only to be disappointed in your greatest moment of need when you stand before God and you have to give an account to him, that thing you're worshiping now will provide nothing for you. So what do you choose? What do you choose? Joshua said, choose this day who you serve. The reason Joshua said that, the reason John says it is because we're not guaranteed another day. And folks, I believe as I've studied this book, as I've been deep with this, with you, I am convinced as I've ever been, we are right on the threshold of God doing something incredible unlike anything the world has ever seen. Father in heaven, your love is an everlasting love. And in, in the middle of all this wrath that we've been reading about, what I see over and over again is your grace and your mercy. Yes, Lord, you're going to judge the earth. And yes, Lord, you are right to do so. But even in those moments, you have provided opportunities for people to believe, and yet, in those moments, they reject. So, Father, very, very possibly this morning, and you know who they are, I don't, I don't need to know. There are people who are struggling with the whole idea of surrendering to something greater than themselves. For them, this life is all about seizing the day. For them, this life is all about all you can get from it. Whether that be money or fame, our fleshly desires well, satisfied. But Father, open their eyes, pull the scales off their eyes, help them to see that the pursuit of all of that leads nowhere but to destruction, distress, and brokenness. The gospel is good news, Father, because in a world that is lost and dying, it is the only good news there is. It's the only good news that gives us eternity with you. But it's also the good news that helps us to live out faith.
today. It gives us purpose and meaning and joy. Nothing else in this world can give that. Father, I pray that that this body of believers, this body that is gathered here, that not everyone here truly believes. And Father, today that would change. For those who have crossed from death into life, those who have put their full faith and trust in you, there are still moments and times where we can get wrapped up in ourselves. We can let our own egos and our own pride take over. And in that moment, we are guilty of idolatry. So Father, I pray that we would seek forgiveness and restoration. We ask all this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, the one who died and rose again. We ask it in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.